Well, we have a bit of a mutual admiration going on on the platform right now because I had planned to say, before he said those kind words, that I love the worship team's ability to bring us into God's presence Sunday after Sunday. And let's thank them one more time for all the good work they do. Really fantastic. Well, the book of Philippians has become one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It is one of four prison epistles. The other three are Colossians and Ephesians, and then a letter to Philemon. And all of them were written by Paul while he was under house arrest in the city of Rome, scholars think between 60 and 62 AD. And he was in chains to a member of the Praetorian Guard, which was an elite group of guards surrounding the emperor of Rome. And those chains, I thought when I first read this years ago, must have been oppressive. But to my surprise, what he said was, these chains has proved to be the way in which the gospel is being advanced. And he goes on to say that uh, though, well, he doesn't say it explicitly, but since he was chained to a member of the guard, it also meant that they were chained to him. And while they kept Paul in Rome, those chains kept them as a captive audience. And you know, each member of the, uh, that he was chained to uh, learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you had asked somebody in the church at that time, how do you think we can bring Christ to the Praetorian Guard? My guess is they would have said it's impossible. That could never happen. But here it is that he was advancing the gospel while he was there. In chapter 2 of Philippians, you have a, a beautifully written, many think it was a hymn of the early church, description of Christ who did not count equality with God in heaven a thing to hold on to but was willing to become a human being and being born in the likeness of human beings he was willing he humbled himself and became obedient to a crucifixion death therefore God exalted him and his name is above every name and we bow before the Lord the resurrected Christ. And then in the third chapter, you find one of the most precious passages on prayer anywhere in the New Testament. This is what it says in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, if that was the only verse in the whole book, it would be worth buying, right? It's so powerful. And the verse for today's message follows. It says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, during the last couple of years, we have all been affected in one way or another by COVID and the restrictions that come. 
But that's not the only thing that's been troubling to think about. The injustice of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is before us every day in the news. The, the next example of women and children or hospitalized people being killed by indiscriminate bombing. And then we learned that there was a cover-up going on in the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention, in which sexual abuse victims were not treated right. Another kind of injustice was there. That coupled with the polarization of politics in America today, which has infected churches all across the country, I mean, the four of those created a kind of blanket of darkness in my mind, and I found myself asking, how do I get out from under this? How do I find a better way? And in my readings, I, I, I found in my life for the first time in a vivid way, Philippians 4.8. And that's what I want to spend some time with you today, because Paul advises us to think about these eight positive virtues. The first one of which is, think about what's true. Now that is a huge topic, and we have to narrow it if we're going to get some clarity to what it means. And so I decided I would take the truth that Jesus Christ made in the Apostle Paul's life. And, and he wrote about it in 1 Timothy, a kind of description of his testimony for Christ. He says, I thank God, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now listen to this. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Those extraordinarily strong words that he owned about his previous life, a uh, blasphemer, persecutor, a violent man, were dealt with by what he says next. The grace of our Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, I think the example that's set here is that each of us does well to think about the difference that Jesus has made in our own lives. We should not forget those. They may be small, day-sized chunks of change that Jesus brought to you, or they may be huge and, and a redirection of your whole life, as was true of Paul. And then what he does is to give us a view of the gospel that all of us can lean into. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then he adds, of whom, I, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was showing mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's a description that's worth just spending a lot of time thinking about and comparing it to the changes that Jesus 
has made in your life, as is true for me, as I think of the changes he has made in my life. We haven't arrived yet, but we're not where we used to be, and so let's stay close to Christ. Think about, secondly, he says, what or who is noble? Now, I decided that rather than to take each of those eight things as a a word that needs to be defined, that needs to be done, but by itself, that's kind of a, a brain experience rather than a whole life experience for me. So, think about what or who is noble. Nobility is the byproduct of other qualities in our lives, like integrity, reliability, patience, and perseverance. This summer, Carol and I had the privilege of visiting her youngest sister and, and his and her uh, husband, uh, John. Uh, there is John sitting on, on the right-hand side as we look at the picture. Uh, John suffers from a deteriorating neurological illness similar to Parkinson's. And it has uh, meant that, that he wears uh, braces on his calves and specially designed shoes to help him walk. He uses a, a, uh, a walker to get around. This uh, six-foot-tall man now weighs about 100 pounds. He looks very thin and not very well in this picture. But that's the reality. And as we were sitting with his uh, uh, son, and, and uh, his new wife, as well as his wife, Miriam, and Carol and I were there. He, he just started to tell us what life is like for him. He said, once when we had just bought this house, a long strike came into the business that he was a part of, and I didn't know what we were going to do. And he said, the Lord spoke to me and said, John, I will take care of you. And he did. And then when I got this disease, I had a sense that God was speaking. And he again assured me, I will take care of you. And John said, I thought it meant he would deliver me from this illness. But what I learned was that he would take care of me through the illness. And now he said, God is caring for me through my wife, Miriam. And she is so devoted and such a servant wife, caring for his needs during this very difficult time. There was a, a long pause when he finished saying that. And I said, John, you are a noble man. And, and everybody that knows John in that circle agreed. He still has a sense of humor. He still cares for other people. He is the kind of Christian that you want to be around. So pick out somebody in your life who is noble and spend time thinking about a noble person. There is a, uh, an, another word that is in here. Paul says, think about what's right. The word for right is righteous, and it can be translated just. So I have thought about women and men who have increased justice in this world. If we took the word righteous, we could talk about evangelists. But because of all of the oppression that's going on, I'm digging into the subject of justice more than I ever had. And I think of Wil William Wilberforce. I never tire reading about that man's life. He lived in England at the height of the slave trade. 
he became a member of the English Parliament in 1784. And the next year, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the historians that write about him says, on December 7, 1785, William Wilberforce committed his life to Christ and submitted his career to God's will. Once he yielded to the idea of fighting the slave trade, he, who was hardly more than five feet tall and less than 100 pounds, was unstoppable, unwavering. His mission consumed him. In 1812, he resigned due to ill health, but for the next years from the sidelines, supported uh, incremental changes in the laws about slaves. And then, three days before he died, he was told that the huge act, the Abolition of Slavery Act, would pass. That act freed all the slaves in the United Kingdom. That's such an inspiring story to me. It was a long and knock down, drag out in the British Parliament process before it happened, but he promoted what was just. So think about people who advance justice in our world. And then think about what is pure. I thought of pure water, pure air, pure honey, pure motives, pure humor, pure laughter, pure joy. And I landed on pure joy and spent a chunk of time thinking about pure joy. Uh, I came across a, a story, a brief one, from Randy Elkhorn. He tells about a person that he led to faith in Christ. And this new believer asked an older Christian, will there be laughter in heaven? Oh, no, the woman replied, appearing to be dismayed that he would even ask such a question. Then Elkhorn said, she could never be more wrong. God promises that we will laugh, rejoice, experience endless pleasures in heaven. Martin Luther said, if you're not allowed to laugh in heaven, I don't want to go there. I think that's a great statement. So think about joy. Think about what's pure in any number of areas. And, and I think pure joy is a great place to begin. And then Paul says, think about what's lovely. Last Sunday, Carol and I received a phone call from our son, who is a, uh, uh, a surgeon at the University of Michigan Medical School. Uh, and, and we asked him how his day had gone. He had been on call and had been doing surgeries all day long. Well, he said a, an elderly woman was suffering from an aneurysm that was ready to explode. And he said, when I got there at 6 o'clock in the morning, I found out that she had told the attendants that she wanted a different surgeon than the one who was available at the moment. And when John walked in, she said, are you a Christian? He said, yes, I am. She wasn't quite convinced. She asked him again, are, are you a born-again Christian? John says, yes, I am. Oh, well, then I'm going to go ahead with this surgery. And John told her as he held her hand as they were walking down the hallway to the operating room, um, I pray for everybody I do surgery on before the surgery. 
And she said, oh, then I'm ready to have it. And that were, she said, I have so, such a sense of peace. And before the anesthesiologist put her under, uh, that, those were her last words. And when Carolyn and I heard that story, we thought, that's a lovely thing that an elderly woman in a secular university hospital could find a Christian to do the surgery. So think about lovely things that will make a difference in your life. Or take the admonition to think about what's admirable. Last Sunday, a woman in New York named Danielle accidentally threw out her diamond wedding ring. She realized where it must be in the middle of the night and did the only thing she could think of. She wrote a note and put it under the windshield wiper of the uh, garbage truck that was going to come and pick up her stuff or that had picked up their stuff. Now, maybe the reason this story caught my attention is because when I was about 10 years old, my mom lost the diamond that was in her uh, wedding ring set. And I remember Dad taking the... Uh, I'm blanking on what you call it, under the sink, the, the, the U uh, place that holds some stuff. And he went through all of that to see if he could find the diamond. He did the same thing with the washing machine downstairs. And, and they looked everywhere and could not find it. Eventually, Dad bought a whole new wedding ring and set for Mom. It was very precious. But the picture that you have on the screen is of Gary, the garbage man, and Danielle after he spent an hour going through the garbage by himself he was able to find the garbage bag with paint rags. I guess she told him that's the clue that it would be theirs. And he ripped it open and found her ring. And here's the picture of the two happy people. What he did was admirable, right? So think about admirable acts of kindness in this world. And then it says, think about what's excellent. Gordon Fee, the great Pentecostal New Testament uh, scholar, wrote a commentary in the book of Philippians, and he said that the word for excellent in the Greek that's found here is found nowhere else in the New Testament. And it is the word that was used by playwrights and philosophers of their day to describe the highest ideal of virtue or, or what was best in the ancient world. And then Dr. Fee goes on to say that what Paul is saying to these Philippian people that they should go feel free to look at the pre-conversion experiences they had with whatever was excellent in the ancient world. I, I think that's such a great statement on his part. And, and you and I uh, can follow that example. Uh, things that are excellent are, are, are worth spending time on, whether it's music or art, or architecture, and uh, recently, the most vivid example of excellence that I know of in science is the James Webb Telescope. It's been flown out a million miles to land in a place where the gravitational pull from the sun and the moon and the earth are equal so that it's static in the same place. And the process of manufacturing the James Webb 
telescope is an amazing story. I can just do highlights. Um, 14 countries are represented by the specialists who worked together for over 20 years, and they together spent about $10 million to create this. If you want to take time to, to read about something that's truly extraordinary, read about the unfolding of the telescope a million miles from Earth, in which, if I remember correctly, there were about 345 points at which if something hasn't happened, the whole thing would not have happened. But there it is, and you see on the screen a picture that was sent back, one of the first. Uh, there are many others out there now, but th this is a picture of light. Now, this just blows my mind to try to understand it. The light that's pictured in this scene left the stars, the galaxies, the furthest away ones, 13 and a half billion years ago. And the light bends when galaxies pull it from where a straight line course would be. And uh, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, says that the image shows light from galaxies bending and in coming months the picture of light will reach back to 13.7 billion years, which they estimate is about 200 billion years. That's still a long time, but comparatively speaking, uh, about 200 billion years away from the Big Bang, the beginning of it all. And he says, that's what we're doing. We're going back to the beginning. Well, I don't know about you, but that story blows my mind in terms of what this telescope brings to us. And it also has a lot to do with creating inspiration and, and thankfulness. It's just a great time to be alive at that point. And then the last item on the list says, think about what's praiseworthy. I opened this uh, message by saying that the dark blanket of injustice in part from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, is awful to watch and listen to. I found it oppressive. But this passage of Scripture said, think about what's praiseworthy. And there's Vladimir Zelensky out in the field with his soldiers, and he has been so diligent and so courageous, courageous along with his wife, that uh, he's been compared to the Churchill of World War II. Uh, his presidency, in which he pleads for help, in which he, he persuasively says the fight for democracy in Ukraine is a fight for democracy around the world, and, and countries have responded as never before. NATO is stronger than it's ever been. It's a beautiful story. His presidency is praiseworthy. And then there is uh, the cover-up in the Southern Baptist Convention. The praise band can come and join me now if you wish. Uh, I don't know about you, but that story was just uh, oppressive to me. Uh, when, when churches do what God wants them to do, there's nothing quite as exciting as being a part of them. But when the light in churches is dark, how great is the darkness, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount.
And, and so th that was a really hard message to hear. But then I started thinking about how the changes came. And, and I read about uh, Beth Moore, uh, who has been so eloquent in her ministry of Bible studies, and Russell Moore, who now works for Christ Christianity Today. And they left the Southern Baptists first. But then at the last big gathering, they elected a new president, and a new executive committee was formed. And they are reversing the oppressive policies of cover-up that kept abused women suffering far more than they should have. And you know what? The thousands of members of the Southern Baptist Convention that voted in a new president and a new executive committee, they did something courageous. They said, we're not going to live with this anymore. And that is praiseworthy. And then the polarization of Christians uh, bothers me all the time. Because it seems like politics is more important than Jesus, doesn't it? So when Jesus was going to choose the 12 disciples, the Bible says he prayed all night. That suggests that his decisions and choices were not a mistake. And he chose among the 12 Simon the Zealot. Zealots at that time hated Rome. They were street fighters. If they could kill a Roman soldiers, they were happy to do so. He chose Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. What did he do with Rome? Well, he did a compromise with them. He said, I'll collect the taxes and add a little bit for myself. He became wealthy using the Roman government to help take extra money away from the Israelites. If Jesus were choosing 12 disciples today in, our, in these United States, if he followed the same example as we have there, I think he would take a prominent Republican, pick a prominent Democrat, and put them along with 10 others, and then he would say to them, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love each other. And I just think that teaching of Jesus that's so relevant and so helpful is praiseworthy. So, the bottom line of following the instruction to think about these eight categories is this. Thinking well enables us to see God clearly at work within our fallen world. And when we see God at work in our fallen world, we have a sense of hope and comfort and courage and we are more easily joyful followers of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good thing? So take Philippians 4.8, take your journal, write down notes. The examples keep replacing themselves as they arrive. And it is such a healing, therapeutic, life-giving discipline to follow the advice of Philippians 4.8. It's my privilege to be with you today. God bless.